Thank you all for tuning in. The following is a presentation of Bald Spots Productions. Be sure to like, comment, and share. You know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you've got to do to kick that algorithm into gear and help us reach more people. It is I, your humble host, Bill Hatch the Third, coming to you live from the Palace Home Studios of Bald Spots Productions here in the beautiful city of Malden, Missouri. Joining me today from more than acceptable safe social distances are my <laughs> guests for today, Mark David Gerson and Jeff Rasley. How are you gentlemen doing? Doing great, thank you. Very good. Good to be with you again, Bill. Yes, good, good to have you back. And, uh, um, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this will be a, a different experience for you because um, we have a different person here with us. But, uh, um, uh-oh, having issues communicating with them and trying to reach them. Great. Okay. Well, uh, we'll continue <laughs> as, as issues are abounding. Um, my first question that I always ask everybody is, what are you reading? So, uh, uh, Mark David, we'll start with you. What are you reading right now? Well, I, can I answer by what I'm listening to? Because ever since I recorded my first audiobook over the summer, I've been hooked on audiobooks. Okay, sure. We'll, we'll count it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm reading something that's not, that's not new. Um, it's a book by, written by the author, American author Richard Russo, and it's called Empire Falls. Okay. What, uh, what are some key takeaways you're getting from it? This time. This time. Um, he, he paints small town America. This, this book is set in Maine. The other books I've actually read as opposed to listened to up here have all been set in the Northeast. Um, and it's, uh, it's usually very character driven. And, and that's what I like. I like to read about, I like to read interesting people just as I like to write interesting people. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit because <laughs> last night I had to reread um, part of my own last book because I submitted an excerpt to um, a publication called Synchronized Chaos that I've uh, published through a number of times. So I had to reread uh, that book uh, to decide what excerpt I wanted to send them. And that book is called A Hitchhiker's Big Adventure uh, on the Road from Indiana to uh, Key West and uh, New Orleans for Mardi Gras 1972. But I am, uh, like Mark, listening <laughs> to another book, which I'm not actually enjoying, which I'm surprised because it's by Bernard Cornwell. And I can't even remember the title of it because when you do an audio book, you, you, you know, you don't see the, the front page to, <laughs> to see the title of the book you're, you're uh, listening to. And it's disappointing and kind of horrible because Cornwell is a wonderful writer. He's written a bunch of um, series that I've really enjoyed. But this book has, <laughs> as the main character, a young woman who starts out as this uh, vibrant, um, sort of rebellious, uh, spirited young woman, and she has descended into becoming a whiny, um, incompetent uh, domestic. And so that's really disappointing. Plus, there's a lot of sort of sadistic torture scenes in it. So. I'm almost on the verge of dropping it, but because I, I like Cornwell so much, I'm, I'm going to stick with it and hope it gets better. Oh, well, hopefully, uh, hopefully there's an explanation at some point as to why somebody would, uh, why? would change characters so, uh, so drastically. Yeah, and not, and not in a, an enjoyable way. I mean, her arc, you know, you think of an arc, the character mm -hmm. is sort of going up, <laughs> this one is going down. <laughs> Yikes! Oh goodness. Well, uh, I do. Uh, I do apologize for uh, uh, for cutting out there. Um, so everybody knows my uh, my internet has been acting up. I'm going to have to make a call and uh, after this is done and and find out why what's going on there. But um, no, that's uh, that is awesome though. It's it's great to be uh, doing some reading. I'm I'm reading in preparation for going back to school. So nothing I'm reading is that interesting um 
Although, uh, although I did just read, what's it called? Uh, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And because uh, um, I'm, I'm going to school for uh, 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 a Master of Divinity in uh, a thing called Marketplace Ministry. And uh, um, so there's a lot of leadership and, uh, and, uh, um, and things like that. Uh, social media and, and technology. Oh. Well, that, that sounds actually interesting, at least to me, because I have an M, the MDiv degree. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> and I was in seminary um, back in the mid to late 80s, and dying churches were definitely a, a big issue back then, and that continues to be. It does. That was my cap's. My cat's tail just whipped in front of the screen. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I was wondering what the. I think I saw the cat uh, in the background a moment ago. So, of course, uh, of course, they always have yeah. to get into uh, into it. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, she's but, a yeah, camera hog. Yeah, yeah, they usually are. Uh, my cat ran away when we got here to Missouri, so uh, she decided uh, there were greener pastures. But. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, but, uh, I have a dog, and he's over there chewing on something right now to keep him out of mischief. But you never know. That's true. You do never know. Um, yeah, our dogs, uh, I, I live with my cousin, and he's got the dogs with him right now. And uh, they tend to be very lazy. <laughs> so I don't generally worry about them too much. But uh, um, but yeah. So Jeff, you're you're familiar with uh, with the problem that churches are having of dying. Oh yeah. Um, I I did a at least to me it was a very interesting study um, at the conclusion of my seminary experience. Um, a uh, a local church which was close to dying asked me to. Um, uh, to serve as a consultant, wow. do a very thorough examination uh, of the church, um, its practices, history, uh, location, etc., uh, and try to come up with a plan to turn it around. And what was really interesting, and I think this is true of many churches, uh, was the my conclusion was the only way you're going to increase your numbers in the way that you would like to is for you to make some dramatic changes. And the problem is the people that were there really liked the way it was mm -hmm. and they didn't want to change. They wanted to just kind of, you know, nibble around the edges. Oh, do some more marketing. Um, yeah. You know, try to do some outreach in the in the neighborhood. I said, "Well, you've been in this neighborhood for seventy years, so I think the neighbors pretty well know you're here. Uh, so I don't see that as effective. Sure, you can come up with some new sort of uh, hipper uh, marketing, promo, branding efforts, but that's the problem. Is people are going to come and they're going to see." The way you do your services is very traditional, and yeah. if you're trying to reach young people, um, this isn't going to be what appeals to them. And so, you know, the the end of the my uh, consultancy for that church was just, you know, sorry, you're on a slow spiral <laughs> downward, and you're going to continue on that spiral downward unless you're willing to make really significant changes which you're not. Right, right. That's that's kind of how the book uh, goes. I've actually survived the deaths of two churches. Um, one when I was uh, um, when I was still in high school and uh, it was a church my father preached at. Uh, he got assigned there because the church was dying and uh, he'd brought back a church before, but this one was too far gone. It was just, it was just terrible. Um, and, uh, and the last one was, Again, the, the family church. This was a church that uh, my family members had gone to since 1949, and uh, um, you know, great grandparents, grandparents, and and both parents, and uh, and then myself, and both grand, yeah, both grandparents, both sets of grandparents. That is, and uh, um, 
Yeah, they uh, it, it the the funny thing is this book almost reads like the biography of that church. You know, everything that that happened that was good was in the past. Um, everything, you know, the 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 preachers that were great were in the past. Um, everybody was weird and different now, and uh, uh, you know they didn't want to change the service. They tried merging with a younger church, but they really didn't want to do that. They, they brought the new church, in, the new church in, they bought the facility. And, uh, um, so saving the, uh, the building and then the, uh, the people from the old church basically held church in one of the smaller rooms. They, they wouldn't go to the new church's services. And, uh, um, yeah, and it was, it was like, and so they ended up leaving, uh, the, the, you know, taking, uh, taking their toys and going and, uh, um, about, uh, about six months later, they decided to close the doors and, uh, the new church, as far as I know, is still, uh, is still plugging away at the, uh, at the build, old building, but, uh, um, but they're not, uh, they're definitely not the old church. Um, and, uh, um. Yeah, it's it, it was crazy. I'm reading this book and I'm going, and it's like, okay, that happened, that happened, that happened, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. If, it, I mean, that's that's basically the the thing of it. If you're not willing to do make drastic changes, I mean, you gotta kind of think of yourself like a business. You're trying to sell yourself to and the message to the community, and if you're trying to sell it to a different community. Sure. Then, you know, they're then they're not going to receive it. They're not going to they're not going to buy in. And so uh, the people, the community had become like 70, 80 percent uh, Hispanic and they definitely were not in the church. And uh, uh, I think the new church is going to have a similar issue um, because uh, they were used to reaching Asian audiences. So. So, uh, um, so it's gonna it, it's gonna be interesting to see if they survive uh, much longer, you know. So, I worked with another church which was very similar to the first one. Um, mm -hmm. These were both Presbyterian churches, very traditional uh, in many ways. Yeah. But the second one was willing to make changes, and so what they did, which is there's some parallel with what you just described. Um, they created a second service that was designed for younger people. They had a rock band, which is very good. I mean, really, really great musicians mm -hmm. um, and designed the service to include kids uh, in more ways than just, okay, now we're going to have a cute little ch children's sermon and then get out of here. Um, so the families could stay together during the service and feel comfortable with that. And what they did with the older people um, is they had the early service. So they had two service. Early service was for the older people. It was very traditional, choir, organ, that whole bit. And just over time, over a period of probably eight years, the older people basically died off. Um, hopefully left money <laughs> to the church, which I know several of them did, and which was why uh, we wanted to keep them happy and right. uh, felt like they were still important to the church. And that first service just ended. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a real success story in that. And this was, oh gosh, you know, the change was probably 20, yeah, 15, 20 years ago. And that church is still going strong and it's, you know, centered on uh, families, uh, particularly families with kids. So, you know, it it can be done, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, it's hard when, and it, I mean, this isn't just for churches. I mean, any organization that's been successful and that has you know, a cadre of uh, involved people. And, you know, this is this is how it's always been done and it's, always, and it's worked and okay, now it's not working anymore. Right. What are you gonna we do? We don't wanna change. It's not working anymore, but we don't wanna change. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, another, I mean, this is kind of a coincidental that this discussion has gone this way because it, and, you know, sorry to be trying to uh, self promote my latest book, but I actually <laughs> okay. have a chapter in this book where uh, the protagonist is hitchhiking around the country and he spends a night at a church. And it turns out this is a church that's dying. It happens to be, it was a, Episcopalian church in a very traditional uh, service and so forth, but the neighborhood has changed and the neighborhood is primarily black now, African-American. Mm. And uh, so the minister, the priest takes the young man in and they become, you know, close, have interesting theological discussions. And he wants the young man to stay on and help him revitalize the church. And mm. so that's, that's a chapter in the hitchhiking adventure of the protagonist, so, which interesting, you know. And what was the name of that book again? There, but it just fits okay. perfectly into our discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we'll we'll go all uh, we'll go all out with the plug. What's the uh, what's the name of the book? The title is very long: a <laughs> hitchhiker's big adventure. And then uh, subtitle. On the road from Indiana to Key West and New Orleans for Mardi Gras, 1972. So it's based on an, an actual experience I had, but it's okay. uh, it's, it's what we call auto fiction. So right. it's a, a fictionalized memoir because since it happened 50 years ago, I couldn't remember enough. <laughs> didn't keep a journal. Didn't take photographs. 18 year old just out to have an adventure. So I had to uh, base much of the story on my recollection of things that happened, but fictionalize it and make it probably a little more exciting and dramatic than the actual experience was. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I, I can understand that. I've, I've thought about, uh, you know, it's like people talk about uh, memoirs and and autobiographies and and uh and the like and i'm thinking like yeah i could never write one of those i don't remember half the stuff that happened <laughs> and the stuff that i do remember you know, i can't just, keep but i can't keep it in the right order you know i teach memoir writing among other things and you'd be surprised at how much you actually do remember when you start writing it okay <laughs> that's true and mark i actually have have taught memoir writing as well for an organization called Indiana Writers Center here in Indianapolis. Um, and when I started writing this book, which I intended it from the beginning to be fiction, but based fairly closely on my actual experience, it, it, it was amazing how just this well of memories of 50 years ago came back to me with, you know, really extraordinarily uh, close details. Mm. Um, but I, 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 I've written a, a few memoirs and I just, the, the, the freedom of getting to make stuff up oh, for sure. <laughs> while, you know, basing it on or being inspired by actual experiences. I, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it's more fun and liberating. I've done that too. I have several memoirs, but whoops. And I also have a, a fiction series that's loosely based um, on, on, well, my growing up, I guess, my, my teens and early twenties. So yes, it was kind of fun to, with a memoir to realize, to remember Mark, things I thought I forgot. Um, and with the fiction to um, be able to kind of turn that into what, it, what I wanted to be as opposed to what it actually was. Yeah, wow. I, I uh, actually the very first book I wrote, although it was only it was the second one to get published because it sat on the shelf for a while, but um, was uh, I practiced law for thirty years, and I had this case that was just ah, uh, it was um, really heartrending. Um, I was actually representing an in, of uh, building this huge tabernacle and youth center and it's a beautiful image to you know help inner city indianapolis and it uh it was essentially stolen from him by real estate developers in collusion with local government and 
So we appealed his case uh, up through the Indiana Supreme Court, lost based on that case, only we win. Ah, well, sure. So, <laughs> you know, that's, <clears throat> as as you were saying, you can, you know, if if it's fiction, you can make it turn out the way you want it to, <laughs> even in, if in real life it, it didn't. So that I got my revenge. Oh, so Mark David, what's uh, what's some of the stuff? Because uh, I know you coach uh, writers. What uh, what are some of the interesting mm -hmm. uh, things that you've uh, that you've come across? In terms of my coaching, well, the, the, the writers I tend to work with are ones that have, like I was many years ago, really creatively blocked. Um, okay. Um, or are ones who, um, really feel like they have a book in them, but they're not quite sure what it is. In fact, I have a, I have a book uh, that's called Birthing Your Book, even if you don't know what it's about, which, which, which addresses that particular issue. So it's really working with uh, both new and, and established writers um, to help them get whatever stories they've got inside them out. Okay. I can imagine that can be difficult at times. Well, you know, I've grown increasingly fussy over the years as to who I'll work with, <laughs> simply because, um, you know, at the beginning, it's like whoever, I'll work with anybody, right? Because you want to build a practice and, right. and you want to make some money. Um, but I discovered that um, the people who say they're committed but aren't um, or don't want to be um, are just not worth the aggravation, really. So, right. um, you know... I pick and choose who I want to work with because I want it to be pleasurable for me as well as productive for them. Okay, sure. Um, what are some uh, some common uh, pitfalls people uh, people fall into uh, as they're writing? Well, one of them, of course, is um, I have this great idea for a book, but I don't know how to start. Or I have all these great ideas, I don't know which one to choose. Or um, <laughs> I've written half the book and now I'm stuck. Mm. Or um, one of my favorites is I have I want to write but I have no time. Um, and of course, yeah. If you don't have time to write the time, book, it's just, it's, <laughs> everyone has time. time the, it's a question yeah. of it's a question Priority. of choices and priorities, of yeah. course. Um, yeah. you know, I had an experience. Um, gosh, this is 2008, so however, however many years ago that was, when I you know the world's finances collapsed and mine collapsed along with it. Um, and I ended up getting um, probably one of the worst jobs of my life. I was actually a 50-something-year-old stock boy at Hobby Lobby. You know the craft chain? I um, know it. And it was horrible. It was <laughs> absolutely, it was actually, it was, it was physically demanding. It was just an awful experience. Um, and I decided that um, a book I had started, well, I decided the only way I was going to stay sane and maybe alive was to go back to a book that I had started and, 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 and let go. And I said, well, you know, I'm so exhausted. I have no time. I said, I said, you know, what, what my clients would say to me. And I said, well, no, that's not true. So what, 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 if I were, if I were my client, what would I tell me? Um, and I said, well, um, what about, you know, lots of writers get up, you know, before dawn and write, you know, four or five in the morning before they go to work. And I thought, well, That'll work for me once, maybe twice, <laughs> um, or stay up really late. But this job is physically demanding. Um, and I thought when I got home, I basically ate dinner and crashed. That wasn't going to work. So what, what, what could I do? And what I realized was I needed to set a goal that was manageable, that was achievable. You know, when people teach goal setting, they often say, well, set you know set really great goals and i say no set really tiny goals because then you can meet them and then increase them as right. opposed to setting this huge goal not meeting it and feeling feeling crappy so i said so what's 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 um what can i actually do what can i actually do and and, and keep doing i thought well you know what i'm going to set my alarm for 15 minutes before i actually have to get up and i'm going to stay in bed and i'm going to write and so okay. those 15 minutes don't seem like a lot, but like 15 minutes, but chunks of 15 minutes do add up. And as I did this, I would then I, I would take the I would take the manuscript to to work with me and sit in the lunchroom and work on it. And I'd work on it on the weekends. Um, 
And suddenly, the more I did, the more I wanted to do. And um, I found the time. I made the time, even that small amount to start with. Um, mm -hmm. And I finished the draft, you know, that year, to my amazement. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, how working just a little bit at a time, um, you know, those little chunks add up. Um, you know, it's the old uh, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> One of my favorite stories is about Connie Willis, who's a science fiction, an award-winning science fiction author. Um, and I saw her interviewed many, many years ago. Um, and she said, you know, she, 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 was, um, she, she was a teacher. And uh, when her first child was born, she said, oh, I'm going to stay home and write because I can do that at home. And she discovered, she says, over the next 18 years that she never had more than 15 minutes at a time because of all <laughs> the demands of, of, of the family and child, and child raising and all of that. And she learned to write in these small chunks of time, you know, sitting in the car, waiting for her kid in, to come out of school or, 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 or waiting for her, her husband to come out of the gymnastics class or, or sitting in the doctor's office. And so that, that was really inspiring to me because I realized you don't need, you know, days and days and days and you don't need um, full days. All you need is a little bit of time and a commitment. Yeah. Yeah, that commitment is the important part, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and um, you know, when people can't commit, I, I will sometimes ask them, well, are you writing what you are passionate about? Because you're not writing what you're passionate about. A, why are you doing it? And, um, and B, it's much harder to stay committed to something that you don't really care about or feel an obligation to. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, let's see. So uh, what's, uh, what's the most recent book you've written? Written or released? <laughs> because it's not the not the same thing. Okay, let's go with release since that's what people can find. Okay, well, right. So I have a so among among the the um, the books I've written, um, I have a fantasy series. Um, and I'm actually wearing a T-shirt for the book. There you go, the Moon Quest. Okay, the Moon Quest. Um, and it's it's actually a re-release. Um, I'm re-releasing the, the books in the series, and I'm actually working on the fifth. But this is the first. Uh, in the series um, and re-releasing it because it covers not intentionally, but issues of censorship and, and hmm. kind of, in a sense, book banning and kind of a lot of the issues that, that we're dealing with today that felt like a really good time to, to put this back out into the world. Wow. What, uh, yeah, well, tell, let's talk a little bit yeah, about, well, uh, about well, that, well, about well, censorship well, and, uh, um, you know, and, uh, and book banning and, and whatnot. Um, cause that's an interesting, uh, an interesting topic. Um, I myself don't believe, uh, in, uh, unnecessary censorship. Um, basically I, I only censor for, uh, for, uh, violent topics and, and, uh, or rather the inspiration for violent topics. Um, you know, I don't want, uh, I, I don't want people to watch the show and, and then suddenly think they need to go out and become violent. Um, but, uh, uh, but otherwise I, I don't, uh, I don't, I, and I've never come across an instance where I've had to edit out for that. Thank goodness. But, uh, um, yeah, I've never, uh, I've never censored the show, um, for, uh, for anything. Um, part of it, I guess, is because I'm too lazy to, uh, to, to, ed to spend the time to edit out the specific parts, but, <laughs> But uh, um, you're also but yeah, probably but, careful uh, about the guests you choose, so that probably helps too. Oh well, remember I don't choose my guests; the the guests choose me. Well, you don't. <laughs> so I've had an interesting experience with book banning. Um, I've been involved with an organization here in Indy, uh, which is the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library. And of course, Vonnegut uh, wrote books um, which have been on the banned list uh, off and on whenever, you know, the sort of uh, this, uh, some local group decides that there are books that need to be banned from schools or libraries. And uh, so Vonnegut is always one, <laughs> one of those that gets banned. And so the, uh, the organization has a banned books week every year. And what they do during that week is they send out 
free copies of books that have been banned to uh, individuals who had uh, been patrons of libraries or students at schools and have had you know books banned either at their library or at their school. And so then um, uh, our Vonnegut uh, Memorial Library will send anybody that contacts the organization that banned book or cool. you know books multiples and so um and and there are a bunch of events that are coordinated with that and so it's been this sort of anti book banning <laughs> uh uh week every year for uh probably 15 years now so you know long before this latest round of the moms for liberty effort to ban books started well, in the, the, the premise of the moon quest, um, it, um, sorry, there's an echo. The premise of the moon quest is it takes place in a, in a land where stories have been banned and storytellers have been exiled or more likely um, put to death. So the imagination is gone, storytelling is gone, and kind of the consequences are gone. Right, that sounds really sounds uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, because, yeah, we uh, definitely... Uh... Is it on audio? Yes, that's... So I, I mentioned at the beginning of the, that, that um, I recorded my first audiobook this summer. That is the audiobook I recorded, and I'm, and I, and I'm the narrator. So, yeah, it's on Audible and oh. on, on Apple Books right now. On Apple Books right now. Great. And, and you, you were the narrator? Yeah. Okay. That was, a, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> I'll bet. I, I've had a bunch of uh, my books turned into audiobooks, but I have not had the guts <laughs> or the <laughs> commitment or will <laughs> to do the narration myself. I, yeah, no, it thank was, you. It was hard work. It was very hard work. It was hard work. It was. Um, it was hard work emotionally. But it was hard work physically. It was hard work physically. Um, I really had to train. I tend to talk too quickly, so I really had to train myself to slow down, um, to you know, to, to a pace that people could actually listen to and not having me racing, you know, racing through the chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was. I would do it again. I would definitely do it again. Did you have uh, much dialogue and have to do, you know? Uh, multiple different voices in the narration. It's funny you should ask that because that was one of my biggest um, insecurities um, was how I would handle the characters. And um, I did some research, you know, the voiceover artists who do voices. And then I discovered, I read, or I've been watching videos, people saying, if you can't do the voices, don't try. <laughs> I thought that's more me because not only do you have to do the voices, you have to remember which voice is which as you go through as you go through the story. So I just narrated it more or less straight, but I actually have had some feedback saying, "Wow, you did those characters really well." So I don't know what I did. So I don't um, know. <laughs> um, but I guess I did it. I mean, I didn't really. I, I may have. I may have altered the timber of my voice a little bit, but I think it's more in the expression. Um, than it needs necessarily to be in the actual change of voice for the characters. Yeah, so you have the advantage oh. of really, really knowing uh, the book, knowing the characters. Like this, my last book has uh, a, a lot of dialogue and people from different regions in the country, from New Orleans to Deep South to the hills of. Uh, Eastern Kentucky, so there's a lot of dialect, and um, the I my narrator is a voice actor. He's a an actor in the Seattle area, and I've worked with him before, so I'm pretty confident he can do it. But it's uh, you know that I mean that that's that's a talent that isn't that goes well beyond just writing. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, really, props to you that you could do it. I'm well, that's interested to listen to well, it. Great. Well, that's that's the advantage of fantasy because you know there are there are no uh, there are no regional accents to deal with. Um, there may be some yes. weird yes. weird sounding names, um, 
and we were setting place names and, and things like that. But in terms of in terms of uh, uh, accents and things, that's something I wouldn't have to deal with. The novel I mentioned earlier, the one that was kind of semi-autobiographical, um, is set in my hometown, which is Montreal, um, and it's. Um, it involves um, my, my background is Jewish, and 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 that's in the story. And there's some Yiddish in the story. I'm not sure how well I would do that if I were to narrate that, but I'd <laughs> probably be open to to giving it a, to giving it a try. Yeah, when, way back when I, I thought think, I was yeah. going to be an actor, I uh, um, I took on a role that uh, that had to have two different accents uh, in it because there mm. was a play within the play. And uh, um, so they mm -hmm. were two different British accents, and I studied accents for months, trying to uh, trying to get it right. Because I, I mean, who hasn't seen a movie where where somebody's had a a, a Dick Van Dyke accent? Um, <laughs> I was that's not the example I was going to use. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, because that was just terrible. The it it. it yeah, a, a bad accent. Well, I mean, in a movie like Mary Poppins, I guess it's not the worst thing that could happen. But uh, um, but yeah, in, in a in a movie that's serious and and uh, or or in a more realistic, that's serious, more realistic, yeah. it, it could take you right out of the uh, right out of the story. For sure. Well, you know, someone yeah. one of my friends said to me, "Well, why don't you why don't you start doing this professionally?" I said it's way too it's much it's much too hard to do it for other people. It was hard enough to do yeah. it for myself. I don't think I'd want to. I don't think I'd want to do it for anybody else. And, I, and you know, as you said before, Jeff, it really helps when you know the book intimately. And I think you know when we're talking about um, doing the characters, the fact that I know this book so intimately and I know these characters so intimately and I've lived with the story for such a long time, I guess maybe it just came naturally. I didn't really have to work at it. Yeah, I, I can see that, and I, the, I haven't been seriously tempted to try it myself. <laughs> um, but it's it's the sort of thing where, if I felt committed to it, I, you know, I'd, I would like to try it. But on the other hand, it's like that is hard work, <laughs> and I. I, did, I spent 30 years as a lawyer and did a lot of hard work. <laughs> and <laughs> since I let that go, I'm totally into doing work that I enjoy. And sure. as you were saying about your uh, coaching practice, uh, if I don't enjoy it at this age, I'm not going to do it. I mean, actually, I did have to get up on my roof and clean our eaves out. So <laughs> I guess I'm still willing to do some things that must be done that I don't enjoy, but they're very limited. Well, you know, if you were to record one of one of your own books, I would say start with your memoir, one of your memoirs. Then you're not. Then you're dealing with something that is, that is more intimate to you. You don't have to deal with characters in quite the same way, and it's your story. So it might be. It might come more easily. That's probably good advice. I uh, I had one small experience um, on an, another podcast. Uh, the host asked me to do um, uh, a, a recording of an excerpt from one of my books, and and it was I mean it was a particular book, and the the conversation was going to be about this book, and it's actually it was a very political um novel called um anarchist republican assassin and it's sort of a uh, it's a novel and it's kind of a, a fantasy of uh what should have happened to donald trump but <laughs> anyway uh and he he's this uh, very left-wing um podcaster and so he really liked this book and he wanted me to do this recording and he was going to use it as kind of an extra to the to our conversation and he said he wanted 10 minutes so i tried like wow i could not do 10 minutes i mean i i i tried and it was terrible <laughs> um so I, I i did five minutes and even just doing five minutes where i was satisfied with the product was uh, it was tough i mean yeah. i'm i've done acting i was a trial lawyer you know i can stand up and spontaneously 
you know, spin off an argument or uh, a, an opening statement that I've got pretty well memorized, but to just read something and do it really well is like, no, that's not one of my talents. <laughs> well, I was very resistant to doing this for a long time. I, I kept saying, you know what, let somebody else narrate it when the time comes. And I was kind of, I've talked into it because like you, you know, I've taught and, and, I, and I do stuff like this and I've had a radio show. I can talk and talk and talk and talk, but to sit and read something in a way that is compelling and is, and is at the right pace and all of that, I, just, I felt very daunted. Um, but it turns out, I guess I can do it because I did. So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, to, to do things like reading and acting and writing. And these are all completely different things. You know, they're not, uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, um, oh, what's his name? Um, shoot. He, uh, now I can't remember the name of the, uh, of the comedian, Mitch Hedberg, um, said, uh, said once, uh, uh of his career that, uh, people were like, great, you're a comedian. Can you write? Make me you know, laugh. It's like, it's like <laughs> write something that makes me laugh, you know. And 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 it's like, uh, yeah, you know, it's a it's a completely different thing. I mean, I do uh, I do leadership training on uh, on the side, and writing this book about leadership is uh, is a completely different thing. It, it's a completely different muscle, and uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to work out. Like you'll see a you'll see an actor, a, you know, a brilliant actor, and then they'll be interviewed. It's mm -hmm. like when they don't have the lines written for it. It's, it's, it can be <laughs> shocking. About, oh yeah. my God, you're so inarticulate! And yeah. so I, I thought, <laughs> no, it's these are really different talents. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, muscle is a is a, is a good word for it. it. They it really requires different muscles. Yeah. Well, it's like real dialogue, uh, like we're having right now, conversation and written dialogue. I mean, if we were to take this and turn it into dialogue in a book, it would be totally, it would be rambling, and it would, and because listening to it is one thing, but reading it as a transcript would be something else altogether. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I also, I also write screenplays and teach screenwriting, and I talk about dialogue as being. Um, not true life, but true to life. That's to sound like it's real, but it can't be real because it was. If if, if we transcribed a conversation with all the ums and ahs and run-on sentences and sentences that that that, that leap from one to the other, we, we we'd never be able to follow it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, something that's really interesting is to see a transcript of an your actual conversation, because as a lawyer. You know, we do depositions and the court reporter actually records those ums and ahs and, ev you know, everything. <laughs> she takes it down and then you and you think, oh, yeah, man, I sounded really great in that deposition. And I was right <laughs> on. And then you read the transcript is, oh, my God, I sound like a bumbling idiot because um, of the ums and ahs. And, right. and you don't realize you're going, you know, you're going off on a tangent. And so that's that's a that's a very interesting uh, exercise for uh, anybody who's in the public speaking to experience. But but you're right, you know within the context of the conversation, it, it, it works. Um, as I see there, I just, um, that the yeah. court reporter would have taken that down. Whereas here, it was, you know, it's okay. That's just like a little spacer. And of course you interrupted yourself to say that, which again, on the page wouldn't, wouldn't work as well. No, a little too self-conscious. <laughs> well, in radio, um, and I have the ability to do it, I just don't uh, plug it in. Um, you normally listen, hear yourself in your headphones. And, uh, you know, and I used to be much worse with my ums and ahs. <laughs> but then I started listening to myself and realizing that I'm doing it. Because when you right. hear it, it's it's just so disturbing. 
<laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it's it's disturbing just to hear your own voice, but uh, especially when it's in real time. Well, I was going to say that that was the maybe the hardest part of doing the audiobook was was listening to my listening to my my own voice as I'm recording, mm-hmm. um, uh, because then you get hypercritical. Get hypercritical. Yeah. And it's it's how you how you listen, but don't judge as you go. Which I guess it's the same thing in writing: how you write and don't judge as you go. So it, it was that was an exercise too, and just listening for mistakes so I could stop and do it again, but not judging my voice and not judging my 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 narration and not judging my you know how I'm how I'm expressing the characters and all of that. That was that was that was hard. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear my recorded voice, it I, I'm, <laughs> it surprises me. It's like, <laughs> no, I don't sound like that in my own head. That's a, that's no. a different person. I mean, did you did you experience that when you were doing? Well, the you narration? know, I I have a background um, as a journalist. So back in the day, um, I would tape recorder tape record with real tape. <laughs> not digitally tape record my no. uh, my interviews so i got used to not fast forwarding up over my own voice which i didn't i couldn't stand um and so I've, over the years i've gotten used to it so that wasn't so much i now know i don't sound like the way i think i sound and i just deal mm-hmm. with it but certainly in the again in the early days of doing interviews and and, and then and then transcribing or playing them back to take notes from them that was hard. That was hard too. It was like, ooh, I don't, I don't sound like that. I don't want to sound like that. Yeah. Yeah, I find yeah. I, uh, okay, I so sound I like wanna... my brother. I so I found <laughs> that I, my voice sounds like I my brother's too. voice. So yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, a little I, weird. Same with me. I. Yeah, that is weird. Okay, but so now I want to reveal myself. This is evidence that I'm an old fart. Something that really has gotten to bug me <laughs> lately is the use of like. Oh, um, yeah. So I, I I was listening to a program on NPR this last weekend, which is a great program. It's um, radio. I think it's, it's radio science. I think that's the title of. It. But anyway. And, you know, they have scientists on and they're interview the scientists and they have a, a deep dis- discussion about some interesting topic in science. And so the scientist this last Sunday um, was she I'm guessing she was in her 30s and she was, you know, highly intelligent, speaking on this, you know, sort of esoteric topic and every clause she used like. Like she would have to say like every time she would like oh, you know, no. every clause, and it was so distracting. And this is I, I this is a generational thing because um, I have two millennial sons, and one of them says like a lot, the other one not so much. Um, but I've just I've noticed uh, people for the most part under forty um, use like excessively and I, I, my wife and I were having this discussion and we we're trying to remember so what was the similar tick mm-hmm. linguistic tick of our generation we thought maybe you know mm-hmm. not you know but you maybe know you know might be <laughs> no. but anyway I was what do you guys think of that I noticed that too and I guess um it bothers me as much as it bothers you. I am aware, but I am aware of it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, was I just taught thinking... a college uh, class for the lat for a few years. I didn't teach this year, but I had taught about five years, uh, and then with a break for COVID, uh, and many of my students um, was just almost like you know an addiction. I mean, it was a compulsion. That they just couldn't help it. Um, well, here's the good news: if it is student. generational, it'll pass. Yeah, very much, <laughs> and, and, and it'll be replaced by something else annoying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, with one student, I finally pointed it out privately, not 
in front of the other class because he was a really intelligent guy and very articulate uh, and he was he wanted to go into law and so i took him aside and i said you, you know this isn't gonna work when you're interviewing with a law firm or when you're in court because it's going to distract at least older people <laughs> and the <laughs> partners the senior partners are going to be older people judges are going to be older people um and uh he actually improved uh, i mean the the likes didn't disappear but it reminded when i was a young lawyer one of the partners in this firm i was in where i'm in his office and we're talking about this case we're, we're preparing for a hearing and i said you know and he stops and he says, Jeff, if I didn't know, I would tell you and I would ask you. And if you assume <laughs> I know, you don't need to ask me if I know. It's like, oh, oof. And then the next thing he said is, mistakes are to be avoided. And so, I mean, it was a hilarious little experience, but it was also very, um, memorable and well, so all these ticks, you know, in the con I'm sorry, all, these ticks are un all these ticks are unconscious so pointing it out gives you an opportunity to do something about it because we don't yeah. think as we you know we don't think as we say you know we don't think as, uh, when we say like we just we just do it you know i'm reminded yeah. and of, I, I was uh, grateful for him to do that okay and, and i i got better about not saying you know at least in the context of a, a formal setting mm -hmm. like a court or even conversation with other lawyers so uh it makes me think of uh frank zappa and uh, the invention of the valley girl like for sure you know sure. uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> zappa was wonderful zappa was what a wonderful. genius Yes, he was. And uh, most people don't realize that the Valley Girl accent was invented uh, by him. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's really so, kind of funny to think about uh, about those kinds of ticks and how I, how we put it all together like that to uh, to create uh, something that became a thing. And, you know, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like to know. <laughs> for sure I, my wife is still teaching she's an um, English uh, professor English literature professor and she told me when we were having this discussion the other day that the current one is you mean that her students hmm. will start sentences with you mean you mean like that's the proof I'm supposed to uh, put forward in my next paper? And she wow. says, well, it's, it's, it's especially annoying <laughs> to her because you, you mean, if you're going to say you mean, it ought to come at the end to as <laughs> like, you know, a, a question there. I just said, you know, uh, as a question, <laughs> as opposed to starting something that you're saying as opposed to a question of the other person you know what did what did you mean but where do, where, do where you do mean where, 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 i wish i knew then we could stop it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how did they get started yeah yeah especially now with uh with like grammarly and uh um and just regular uh spell check and grammar check on uh on word processors Constantly, even my phone now tells me that I've that I've done one of these things. It puts up a little green line, bright green line, and like, no, you know, you don't mean that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I kind of did at the time, but yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> my problem with my phone is it it does not acknowledge my Canadian accent, which I still have apparently after. 26 years in this country whenever i say whenever i dictate now it types no no whenever i okay. <laughs> so okay <laughs> I, they're supposed to learn they're supposed to learn right over time so i keep correcting uh, that's what it, I thought. And, it, and it 
and it refuses. It totally refuses. Okay. <laughs> my, my assumption of how these things get started is that um, influencers, uh, actors, rock stars, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people that we think are cool, uh, and particularly, you know, gener and why I think they're generational is that people of a certain age um, think, you know, this person is cool. I want to sound like that person. First, you know, we're huge, and I was, you know, preteen. And kids started all of a sudden in uh, Goshen, Indiana, having a, a British accent. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, I've, I've never made a study of this, but that seems to, you know, seems to make sense. I mean, we we all want to be cool. We want to be like uh, cats that are hip. So, especially at that age, yeah. yeah. And, then, and now, of course, with social media and the internet, these things kind of leap into public consciousness and, and usage much more quickly, I would guess, and spend it for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah, thinking about it that way, I, I'm guessing that uh, a lot of the uh, you knows and you means and stuff are probably coming from like TikTok. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, the poor grammar and the linguistic tics um, are probably well. I mean, social media in general. I mean, I mean, I mean. Wow! Now I'm hearing it. And texting, where we you know where we adopt all kinds of shortcuts. Yeah. Well, Bill, you can stick with that. I mean, uh, it'll uh, you'll you'll uh, lose several years in age <laughs> you know you know that that's that's a, that's a gen that's a gen zer get get rid of the get rid of the you know because that's baby boomer drop the like because that's millennial stick with you mean and then people Man, will think okay. you're a gen zer <laughs> oh goodness no i'm perfectly pleased being a gen xer uh <laughs> but uh yeah so what's the, yeah. yeah, so what's the Gen X? I mean, we've got, uh, you know, for baby boomers, we've got like for millennials, I mean, for Zers. So what's your Gen X? Cause you, you know, you just, well, you know, you Gen Xers, you're always sort of left out there. We are, we are kind of left out. We're the, uh, the redheaded stepchildren of generations. Um, so I don't know, I always heard a lot of something. dudes. I always heard a lot of dude. Dudes, yeah. Dude. Yeah. Dude. You know, it's a language unto itself. <laughs> so do you remember the character Spicoli? Yes. Yes. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, that's it. Dude. Dude. I mean, wasn't he? He he. That would have been. Would that have been a Gen X or would that be millennial? I think that'd be Gen X. Yeah, the the movie at least was Gen X. And all the sort of sl slacker dude, isn't that slacker dude? Mm -hmm. Isn't that Gen X? Yeah, yeah, the whole slacker thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude came out a lot, and uh, although uh, although I don't personally think I have that tick. <laughs> we're, we're listening. <laughs> yeah, now everybody's listening. Dude, cut it out. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm thinking that uh, that yeah, it comes from whatever's popular in uh, in the social group. You know, you know. I I'm going to stop talking now. That's just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, dude. You mean? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you think about it. If uh, if Spicoli was what got people saying dude, and social media today is what got, you know, what has people saying you mean, then, you know, it's got to be the social, whatever the social media of the day is. Um, you know, if, uh, if the... Uh, if the Beatles got the got the kids in rural Indiana to talk with a uh, with a uh, a British accent, <laughs> then perhaps that's uh, how it is uh, throughout uh, throughout time. 
you know, you get to well, popular culture. You know, and again, pop, pop culture. And with, with social media, things just just disseminate more uh, more quickly and more widely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking it's got to be. Yeah, because it, it was always sort of a mystery when, you know, back before Internet and uh, uh, texting and, and social media, et cetera, though, how these things would spread. Um, yeah. I so I I grew up in northern small town Indiana. Uh, when I was ten years old, we went out to L.A. family trip, you know, cross country road trip to visit our aunt, uncle, and cousins in L.A. And so, wow! And they were older; they were teenagers. Oh, wow! Cool surfer, Beach Boys, and all that. <laughs> and yet, so much of the popular culture and the uh, the sayings well back the term cool cool was cool it was cool to say cool it was cool to the say cool rural or small town indiana and suburban la there really wasn't that much difference and somehow well, you know these things movies, movies and tv spread. you know <laughs> yeah you watch the same tv, that they watched. TV. um you, you saw the same movies that they saw so that there's, there's. Um... True, but, okay, but here's one. Explain this. Um, <sighs> my wife and I have compared, uh, for example, silly songs that we sang in grade school out on the in the playground. So not what the teachers are teaching us uh, in the classroom, and yet we knew some of the same verses and songs. And uh, she grew up in Virginia. And so it's just, there's somehow this, uh, uh, I mean, you'd call it a, <laughs> uh, uh, tentacles, uh, you know, grapevine that's moving across the country that grade school kids are somehow tuned into. I mean, right. how did we know so, those same silly songs? Some collective unconscious thing. By our parents. Some collective yeah. unconscious thing going on, I guess. Yeah, who's so very is young, Ian? <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Yeah. The. Uh, yeah. Well, we when you think about it, we well, all came. Our ancestry oh. came from, you know, or a lot of the ancestry of the United States came from a single place, and so you have that source material there, you know. Um, what was it? Uh, I guess the song from uh, um, from uh, Big Bang Theory, uh, "Soft Kitty," is originally a, an English folk song. So, you know, that's coming from there, and that's how, in part, that spread. Um, you know, so uh, um, so yeah. So I'm thinking that. The way that it spread is, you know, that we get like the silly songs and stuff is that it all comes from one source. And we could probably find that if we looked hard enough. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, um... I'm, I'm going with kids uh, just visit and, you know, this... Uh, kid from this school visits that school and that a kid from that school visits next. So it's just the network that spreads, but maybe, no. maybe it is the collective consciousness. I don't know. Well, it's like an old Breck, an old uh, Breck TV commercial where you tell two friends who tell two friends who tell two friends. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it still has, it still has to begin somewhere. Um, right. Our host disappeared. Right. Well, you know, I mean, look at look look at story look at story plots. How many are there? Really, there are many, many there are infinite variations of all these plots. Um, but in the end, you've got to. It seems like there's a finite number that we then work work from. So where do those where do those come from? You know, do they also live somewhere deep within our again collective unconscious? I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, we'll leave I'm, that I'm, uh, to the unions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, yeah. my internet connection seems to be getting worse. So, uh, and we've been at this for about an hour. 
So, uh, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, gentlemen, if you have any final words for the nice people. Well, read our books. That's we're into. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Read our books, but since we're into the new year, I would just say, you know, best wishes for 2024. Be good to each other. Be good to other people, and spread love, kindness, and joy. Okay. And I can't really top that. <laughs> so go out and read the go out and uh, and buy the audio go buy mark david's audiobook and uh and buy jeff's book and yeah i'll put the links in the uh in the description so uh so people can find your stuff uh real easily thank you all for tuning in this has been a presentation of bald spots productions i'd like to thank our producer my beloved mother eileen hatch I, of course, am your humble host. I'd also like to thank my special guest, Jeff Rasley, who is a philanthropist, author of A Hitchhiker's Big Adventure, and president of two charitable foundations. And Mark David Gerson, who is author of the Legend of Kintara series and a bunch of books to help writers. He's also a writing coach. Support the show if you feel so led over on Patreon.com. We're known as Bald Spots Pro. Don't you dare miss YWL Online. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and wherever fine podcasts are offered. Be sure to tune in next time when my special guests will be Glenda Benavides, a Grammy-considered artist who has planted over 250 trees around the world, and Anthony Rosano. He's a severe burn survivor who is now an NFL agent and author of Against All Odds, a story of faith, courage, and never giving up. Be sure to like, comment, and share. You know, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you've got to do to kick that algorithm into gear and help us reach more people. If you or someone you know needs support now, call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. That is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline here in the United States.